In Advent this year, we are looking at the lectionary indicated scriptures from the book of Isaiah. And each of those scriptures can be matched up with one of the traditional Advent themes of peace, hope, joy, and love. The scripture for this morning, I think, matches well with the Advent theme of peace. In the days to come, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. In other words, God's intention for God's people, indeed for all nations, for the whole creation, is the work, the way of peacemaking, of peace building. Weapons of violence are to be turned into tools for growing, for planting and harvesting, plowshares and pruning hooks, the tools with which you put seeds into the ground, the tools with which you prune back dead branches or overgrown branches so that there can be more health and growth. The prophet is proclaiming that God's intentions are intentions of wellness, not destruction, of attentiveness to health, not the undermining of well-being. God's intentions are for nations to lay down their swords, for humankind to no longer learn or practice the ways of war, of killing. It sounds high-minded, doesn't it? Idealistic. After all, most of us would say the reality is that we live in a world of violence. Just in this past week, there were two more mass shootings in the United States, including one at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado and another at a Walmart in Virginia. Two of over 600 mass shootings in the United States so far this year. Nearly 40,000 people have died in the United States due to gun violence overall in 2022. Swords into plowshares? In whose dream world will that ever become a reality? And yet... Here's the good news. We are made for peace. We are made for peace. We are not made for violence. We are made for peace, for community, for cooperation. We are not created, we are not designed for violence, for killing. We are created, we are designed for helping for sustaining life. Peacemaking, peace-building is in our bones. It is in our souls. We are made not for violence against each other. We are made for helping our fellow human beings. Perhaps you are thinking, sure, that's what you hope is true. But that's not the reality of the human condition, of the patterns and practices of our world. People are violent. People are instinctively violent, defensive, hurtful. The peacemakers are the exception, not the rule. Well, let me say this. If you think that, you are wrong. Peacemaking, 
peace building is not just the province of the ideal, it is the core of the human instinct. It is our instinct from our very beginnings, from the very essence of our human identity. When you come into this world, before you are forced to defend yourself against this dangerous world, before you are told of the differences between races and nations, before you are exposed to a steady diet of junk news, news of every bad thing, every spectacle of violence, over and over and over, before all of that, your core is a core of peace, of helpfulness, of happiness, of kindness. That's where we start. That is our essence. We begin our journey in the loving heart of God. In our tradition, we don't baptize babies to save them from their state of original sin and eternal damnation because we don't believe that babies are guilty of anything. We dedicate them instead, and we do that because we know that the world will be hard on them and will pull at their true essence and will lead them away from home. So we promise together to be a teaching, supporting, restoring, healing, guiding community for them. We seek to nurture their true essence. The week before last, I was in Melbourne Beach, Florida, with Lois while she was attending Ader financial board meetings I helped her with the traveling part, and in turn, I got some time to hang out, to walk the beach, to feel the sand and water on my feet, to feel the warm sun, and to eat seafood. One day, I was walking along the beach, touching my feet into the edge of the water as it came up onto the sand, and close to where I was walking, there was a family set up for beach time with towels and an umbrella and beach toys. The water was too cold to really swim in it, but their little girl was running into the water up to her ankles and then running back out again. She was no older than two years old, perhaps. As I walked along the beach, she ran down toward the water one more time, As she was about to cross my path on her way to the water, she suddenly saw me. She stopped and turned in surprise, a stranger suddenly right there in front of her. And without a moment's hesitation, she smiled and waved at me. I waved back. She ran back over to her parents and then turned and waved again, and I waved back. And then she ran toward me again till she came up close and she waved again. And I waved back. That was her instinct. To wave, to trust, to connect. We are made for peace. We are not made for violence. 
We are made for peace, for community, for cooperation. We are not created. We are not designed for violence, for killing. We are created. We are designed for helping, for sustaining life. The other thing I did while I was in Florida, besides walking on the beach and soaking up a little sunshine and eating seafood, was to read. And the book I read while I was there, cover to cover, was Rutger Bregman's New York Times bestselling book from just two years ago, Humankind, A Hopeful History. And in the book, Bregman argues and demonstrates from various scientific studies as well as historical examples that, quote, we are actually hardwired for kindness and cooperation. And, quote, a belief in our own generosity and collaboration isn't merely optimistic, it is realistic. Two examples especially stood out to me. One was a real-life Lord of the Flies situation, where a group of teenage boys were actually shipwrecked in June of 1965 on a deserted island, a real-life example of the premise of the fictional book Lord of the Flies, and who were not discovered and rescued until September of 1966, almost 15 months later. It happened in the Tonga Island group in the South Pacific. Apparently, the six boys got bored with their studies and their life at the boarding school in the Tongan capital, so they stole a fishing boat and set off on an adventure and subsequently got caught in a storm and became marooned on a desert island, an island where no one would look for them because although it was known, it was considered uninhabitable. When they were finally found by a passing fishing boat those 15 months later, it turned out that the boys behaved nothing like the characters in the fictional Lord of the Flies. Instead, they had set up a small communal garden, hollowed out tree trunks to store rainwater, created their own badminton court, chicken pens, and started and kept a fire going for the entire 15 months, taking turns tending the flame so that it never went out. Bregman, who interviewed one of the boys just a couple of years ago, as well as the sea captain who found them, the boy now 70 years old, and the sea captain 86 years old, reports the following... The kids agreed to work in teams of two, drawing up a strict roster for garden, kitchen, and guard duty. Sometimes they quarreled, but whenever that happened, they solved it by imposing a timeout. The squabblers would go to opposite ends of the island to cool their tempers. And after four hours or so, Mono, one of the boys, later remembered, we'd bring them back together, and then we'd say, okay, now apologize. That's how we stayed friends, he said. Their days began and ended with song and prayer. Colo, another of the boys, fashioned and played a makeshift guitar from a piece of driftwood, half a coconut shell, and six steel wires salvaged from their wrecked boat. He played it to help lift their spirits. During their time on the island, one boy fell from a cliff and broke his leg. But the other boys rescued him at risk to their own lives and set his leg using sticks and leaves. 
During the summer, it hardly rained, so they were frantic with thirst. They had another setback when a storm came through and dropped a tree on their hut. A raft they tried to construct to escape the island fell apart in the violent surf. But when they were rescued, the boys were all physically in peak condition, including the boy whose broken leg had healed perfectly. And not only that, but five of the six chose later to work together on a fishing boat. They remained friends with each other into adulthood and remained friends as well with the man who had rescued them. Left to their own devices, these boys ranging in age from 13 to 16 did not resort to violence, to survival of the fittest, to practices of control and dominance. They instead set about building a community, assuring their shared survival, becoming more human rather than less. And by more human, I mean more kind and compassionate and connected. Even their practices of conflict resolution were better conceived and more diligently carried out than most adults in our current culture would be able or inclined to do. Swords into plowshares? The boys had one old knife blade among them. What did they use it for? To create a spark of fire, a means of survival, of life, not death. This is the human essence. Strip away our cultural baggage, our relentless cultural push toward aggression and single-minded selfishness, our cultural encouragement toward violence, and this is what you get. Affinity for each other, mutuality, life encouragement, connectedness. Here's another example from Bregman's book that supports the idea that humans are not wired for violence, but for relationship, community, supportiveness, and peace. Military officer and historian Samuel Marshall, involved in the Battle of Mackin in November of 1943 in the Pacific Theater, a battle between American and Japanese forces, wondered why Americans, who so greatly outnumbered the Japanese in that battle, had so much difficulty subduing the enemy. Marshall found a way to interview soldiers afterwards without subjecting them to discipline by their officers, a means to get them to speak candidly and honestly about what had happened. And he discovered that what actually happened was that most of them had not fired their weapons. In a do-or-die battle, he found that he could only identify 36 of 300 soldiers who actually pulled the trigger. What was going on? Some people said it was a hoax, this study and others that pointed toward a reluctance of soldiers to kill. But as historians continued to investigate, they found out some interesting things. Among veterans of World War II, they found out that more than half never killed anybody. And most casualties were the work of a small minority of soldiers. In the U.S. Air Force, less than 1% of fighter pilots were responsible for 40% of planes brought down. Most pilots, one historian noted, never shot anyone down or even tried to. 
And going back further in military history, this from the Battle of Gettysburg. Inspection of over 27,000 muskets recovered afterwards from the battlefield revealed that a staggering 90% of those muskets were still loaded after the battle was over. This made no sense at all. On average, a rifleman spent 95% of the time loading the gun and 5% of the time firing it, since priming a musket for use required a whole series of steps, tearing open a cartridge with your teeth, pouring gunpowder down the barrel, inserting the ball, ramming it in, putting the percussion cap in place, cocking back the hammer and pulling the trigger. It was strange, to say the least, that so many guns were still fully loaded. But it gets even stranger. Some 12,000 muskets were double-loaded, and half of those were more than triple-loaded. And one rifle even had 23 balls in the barrel, which is absurd. Muskets, they all knew, were designed to discharge one ball at a time. So what were they doing? Only much later did historians figure it out. Loading a gun is a perfect excuse not to shoot it. And it happened to be, if it happened to be loaded already, well, you just loaded it again and again. Writes Randall Collins, a sociologist who has analyzed hundreds of photographs of soldiers in combat and who calculates that only about 13 to 18 percent fired their guns. Quote, the Hobbesian image of humans, judging from most common evidence, is empirically wrong. Humans are hardwired for solidarity. And this is what makes violence so difficult. So what Isaiah prophesies isn't just a future hope, an ideal not yet and perhaps never fulfilled. It is a prophecy of good news that calls us back to our true selves, a prophecy embedded in the human essence of peacemaking and peacebuilding. That is, I will say it yet again, we are made for peace. We are not made for violence. We are made for peace, for community, for cooperation. We are not created, we are not designed for violence, for killing. We are created, we are designed for helping, for sustaining life. So our calling is to be ourselves our human selves. But to do so with action, not inaction. To do so not passively, but actively. Holding our tongues in the midst of argument is not enough. Not resorting to some tit-for-tat is not enough. Controlling ourselves is not enough. No, what we need to be about is doing something proactive something positive, something productive that reflects our best instincts and our true humanity. It's not enough to eschew violence. We need to make something productive, to turn a sword into a plowshare, to turn a spear into a pruning hook, so to speak. Our calling, indeed our purpose, is not just refraining from doing something bad or violent, but engaging in doing something creative and kind. Can you do it?
Can you be your best and truest peacemaking, peace-building self? Are you in practice? Or are you out of practice? Advent, as we prepare to welcome the Prince of Peace, is a good time to practice these things. To practice kindness and nonviolence. To practice our true humanity, our true essence. In the days to come, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. May those days be now. May we be the peacemakers and the peace builders God has already created us to be. Amen.